1: Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Amen. We're so blessed that you could join us today. We're continuing our study today in the study or the story of the prodigal son. We've been having quite a good time with this. We've gotten a lot of insight from the Holy Spirit. And we're going to continue that today. Amen. But first, let's go to the Lord Prayer. Or go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we come this day seeking your wisdom as revealed to us in your word. Lord, may your Holy Spirit have free reign to talk to us, to come into our hearts. May we have ears to hear, hearts to perceive the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, leading us and guiding us and directing us through the study of your word. That your word be planted down deep into our hearts and then bring forth fruit worthy for you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of all our sins and the free gift of eternal life that you gave to us through him. So Father, we thank you right now and we give you all the honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Join me in our confession of faith. Glory to God, we do this every Sunday. Just repeat these words after me. Now, it's commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed. I like to call it our statement of faith. This lays the foundation upon which we can build our study. Amen. So just. Repeat these words after me. Let them ponder in your mind. and Let them get down into your heart. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of. Of the body and I believe in life everlasting in Jesus name Amen glory to God turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke again remember we're going verse by verse through this story of the parochial son in Luke chapter 15 and the Word of God will allow us in this day and time some 2,000 plus years after the story was originally told the Word of God allows us to get a glimpse into the life and the culture and the social attitudes of the people that Jesus was originally talking to. So Luke 15 is our text, and back to this story that Jesus was telling, the parable, which started in verse 11 and runs through the end of the chapter. And with our message this morning, and then probably next Sunday morning will conclude and we'll continue if the Lord wills but right now my plans are to conclude it next Sunday uh, I believe that you will receive a blessing from this study I know I have been as I was preparing for these messages and I believe the Lord is showing us some things that most people either had no idea of or were simply being glossed over or Perhaps the Lord has shown some of you uh, some things that bring that aha moment in your lives. I mean, in your study of the word. Amen. And Luke 15, the, the story that we're studying, the prodigal son is the common name for it. It's a simple story. Jesus told it on one occasion, in one setting. But for us, it's taken four parts so far with today's study, probably one more after today, for a total of five and perhaps even six parts to get the full benefit of this well-known parable. And that's because we have to fill in so many cultural gaps. And we have to learn how people at the time of Jesus lived and how they thought and how they responded according to their culture. In order to capture the meaning of the entire story now, this has been a very rich rich story and as i said it's known as the study of the paragial sun but that's not just the whole story i mean you could have named it several different things it's a story of salvation it's the story of why God became a man and came into this world. It's the story of why he was born in Bethlehem, why he became a human being. He came to bring us salvation. He came to bring us forgiveness of our sins. He came to bring us reconciliation with himself. And in the end, He came to bring us joy. Amen. And as we read this and dissect it, we realize that he came to bring himself joy. Glory to God. So many of the songs that are sung at at Christmas celebrate joy. The joy of salvation. And not only... Our joy and salvation but the joy of God the Father. Not only the joy of being reconciled but the joy of being the reconciler. And as much joy as we experience here on earth because our salvation is in Christ, there is far greater joy around the throne of God in heaven as God himself Rejoices over the salvation of every sinner. That is the theme of this whole story. And as we began studying a couple weeks ago, there are really three stories in this chapter. You probably know by now, I hope, that the first one is about a shepherd who lost a sheep and found it and then had a celebration. The celebration is indicated in verse 7. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Amen. The second story is about a woman who lost a very valuable coin and then found it. And she called all her friends to rejoice in the same way in verse 10. Excuse me. There we go. All right. Lost my audio for a second. Uh, this woman found that she called all her friends to rejoice. And in the same way, it says in verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And when the angel on that Christmas morning spoke to the shepherds, and said, Behold, or look, I'm bringing you good news. Of great joy and it was right it was exactly what it was joy not only for sinners saved but joy for a saving God all of heaven the scripture says celebrates the salvation of one sinner that means if you were the only person on the face of the earth and you got saved there would be joy in heaven amen And as I ended our message last time, as I was closing up, we were kind of in a rush, but we ended by saying God is not waiting for the end of sin and suffering in the world to start the party. No. God's not waiting for some great event in which one million people are saved at the same time, or 100,000, or 10,000, or a 1,000, or even 100. Heaven celebrates every time one sinner is recovered. One sinner gets saved, starts a party in heaven. Amen. And as sinners are saved, day after day, After day after day as the redemptive purposes of God go on in the world the joy Never ends in heaven. The party never ceases in heaven and there is a Continual party going on right now in heaven God is not sitting up on his throne wringing his hands Jesus is not sitting up on his throne crying over all the problems going on in the earth. No There is a party every single time someone gets born again. Hallelujah. The angels start rejoicing. You can't help but have joy if you're in heaven. Your loved ones who have preceded you into glory, they're partying right now around the throne of God. They have access to his throne. They are one with Christ. There is a party going on in heaven. And you may be in the doldrums down here. You may be in poverty down here. You may be in the absolute worst condition in prison down here. But you can cause all of heaven to to celebrate when you receive Jesus as your Savior. And when you die and go to heaven, you can join in the party that is a continuous party 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, ever continuing until the day comes which is gonna happen really soon. When Jesus mounts that white horse, we get on the white horse behind him and we return to this earth to capture it for his rule and reign. Amen. Shout amen, somebody. Glory to God. If you didn't shout right then, you missed a good place to shout. Amen heaven's joy as we've been studying is found in recovering the lost we rejoice in our salvation through Christ he rejoices and God the Father rejoices and the Holy Spirit rejoices and the angels rejoice all the glorified saints around the throne rejoice Which is why at Christmas time we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Hallelujah. Oh, I hope I didn't drive everybody away singing right there. Hallelujah. He came, Jesus came, to bring salvation, to bring this joy to us, for us. Joy to the angels, and most importantly, joy to himself and the Father. Amen. Amen. You missed another good place to shout right there. Glory to God. Salvation is provided as a gift that Jesus Christ gives to us, and it produces the joy of God. And that's exactly what this story is all about. It's illustrated a shepherd's joy when he finds a sheep, a woman's joy when she finds a coin, and a father's joy when a wayward son comes home. Amen. Shout right there. Glory to God. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, is probably the most familiar story of Jesus' stories. If you mention the parochial son, everybody knows, oh, yes, yes, yes. This is just a boy who took all of his money and wasted it. And came home, and his father forgave him. Boy, did you just miss the whole meaning of the story. Everybody knows that little bit about the story. But that is not the story of the parochial son. That's just one-third, 33% of it. Yes, it's about the parochial son. It's about a loving father. And a very dutiful son who stayed back and was working for the Father. A younger son who lives openly in wickedness, sinning and letting everybody know he's a sinner. Disregarding all conventional thinking, all moral standards, doing only what he wants to do, doing it the way he wants to do it, the way he wants to do it, and ultimately the way he has to pay the consequences for it. Does that sound familiar today? There are so many open sinners in the world. You know, when I was growing up, even if you had a filthy mouth, it was, you could cuss like a sailor, you didn't do it in front of the pastor. If you said something wrong, you would email, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Father, or I'm sorry, Pastor. Nowadays, somebody says something out on the street and you look at them and they want to fight. What? What you looking at? Open homosexuality. When I was growing up, you know the, the what two people did behind their own doors stayed private now they want to sin openly they have gay pride parades and things like that open immorality open sinning and rejoicing they want to flout it in the face of christians and ultimately in the face of jesus So that's the story of the younger son. And then there's a story of an older son, a very devoted son, apparently, to his father. He stays home. He does everything he's supposed to do. He does it the way his father wants him to do it. He fits into the conventional expectations of the religious community to which he belongs. He performs admirably. One, you could classify basically as the bad son, and the other would be the good son. And that's the way it's been taught in churches down through the centuries. And in the middle, touching both lives, is the amazing figure of a loving father. Now it's important in understanding this story, as I've been telling you this, understand that these people were highly sensitive to the idea of honor and shame in that culture. You did everything in your life basically in order to maintain your own honor or at least to achieve your own honor because that is what was so important. It was very, very important to be an honorable person. It was a works righteousness type of system. You either, well, you earned your way into favor with God and being good and being religious and being moral and being, you know, towing the line and, and walking the line and dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's in terms of the standard for behavior in the community. It was very important that you maintain that honor That way you were respectable and honorable and you didn't do anything to bring shame to yourself. The Pharisees who believed themselves to be the most honorable, they were the leaders of the Jewish religious system. They believed they were the architects of what honor was and they were also the ones who defined what shame was. They had concluded that Jesus was a shameful, false messiah. And that he was, in fact, not of God at all, but was representing Satan in the community. They said the worst things about him, the worst that could be said, they said he did what he did, the works he was doing, he did by the power of Satan himself. And as their evidence for what they said, he said, look at the kind of people he hangs around with. Amen? We see at the beginning of the 15th chapter, another occasion where all of the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. He attracted the worst element of society, the outcasts the scum, the drunkards, the nobodies, the lowlifes. Those who had been excommunicated from the synagogue, kicked out of society. Nobody wanted to deal with them. Labeled them as socially untouchable. These are the people the Pharisees would not go near lest their supposed purity would be somehow polluted. In fact, that was their criticism of Jesus, wasn't it? In verse 2, we read about Jesus. It says, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Anybody who socializes with sinners is basically telling the world that this is where he belongs. And so the Pharisees so they are of Satan, so he must be of Satan also. That's the way they were thinking. That's what they were telling everybody who would listen. Well, Jesus needs to defend himself now. He needs to defend himself and show that he's not of Satan. He needs to inform them and prove to them that he is of God. So... He's telling them three stories to demonstrate this. He is among them because they are like lost sheep that the shepherd has to go and find. He's among them because they are like the lost coin that the woman had to go and find. And he is among them because they are lost like the sinful prodigal son that the father receives back and embraces. Because he was lost and now he is found. Do they not understand the heart of God? No, they don't. Don't they understand that heaven's joy is not in the the self-righteous 99 sinners who believe they need no repentance. Don't they understand that God's joy is found in the salvation of sinners? This proves how far from God they really are. They don't know God at all, the Pharisees and scribes, who are criticizing and maligning Jesus. Amen? So these stories... Are intended to make that clear and the third story is really the one I won't go through all of it because we've been dissecting this now for three weeks this is part four you know the story by now but everything in it is a shameful thing as the Pharisees sort of sit back and listen to Jesus they're the audience Jesus is telling the story it's a head shaker and eye roller story from the beginning. They can't believe how one outrageous thing after another violates all of their conventional sensibilities. I mean, quickly to, to, to recap where we're at. First of all, the younger son makes an absolute shameful request of his father. He asks for his estate, the part that belongs to him, now. Well, you didn't get that in that culture until your father died. So his request is basically saying, you're in my way, I wish you would die. But since you're not dead, why don't you just act like you're dead and give me what's mine? Oh, shameful, unthinkable in that culture of high honor and of all people, especially insulting the father of the family. And then the father acts in a shameful way with his shameful response. They were expecting him to punish the son. Instead, he gives him what he asked for. What father would do that? A father should slap him across the face and punish him. Tell him, absolutely not. I will not be so dishonored in this family. But the shameful request of the son is followed by the shameful response, and the father gives him what he wants. This is the request of the sinner in our society to be as free as he can be from God, as free as he wants to be, so he can fulfill his desires and his lusts. And you know what? God gives the sinner that kind of freedom. So be careful of what you ask for. I mean, as far as God's concerned, you can take your sin as far as you want to go. You can take it as deep as you want to go. You can go as high and as wide as you want to go. You can go into every nook and cranny that you choose to go into because it's your choice and God has given you that kind of freedom. Well, Brother Bob, if God gives us that kind of freedom, surely, you know, it it, it can't be that wrong in his eyes. That's how wrong you are. He gives you that kind of freedom because he designed man with that kind of will. It's written that God desires every man be saved. But he does not enforce that will on every man. i seen a little thing on the internet said God does not send any sinner to hell. He just gives the sinner the thing he wants. Because if you reject salvation through Jesus and you try to get it any other way, Your choice has been to reject the plan of salvation, which leaves you with condemnation in the end. Amen. That's the kind of freedom God has given to every person. So the shameful request and the shameful response is followed by shameful rebellion. The story goes on, verses 13 to 16. The son goes away into a far country. Remember, first he liquidated all of the assets he was given, selling it cheap at a fire sale. Even though the other people know the father's still alive and that the father's still controlling everything, they now have deed to that property. When the father dies, it's theirs. So the son liquidates everything, takes the cash goes into a far country, leaving the nation of Israel, as it were, goes into a forbidden Gentile land, an unclean land, so unclean that a Jew coming back would have to shake the Gentile dirt off his clothes so he didn't even bring it into the land of Israel. And he ends up trying to eat the food given to pigs an unclean animal, and he's working for a Gentile for no pay. His pay was permission to eat some of the pig slop. All he's given for his work is the opportunity, the right to try and fight the pigs for the scraps they were eating. It is rebellion that brings this son to absolute rock bottom. The Pharisees are in shock. It just can't get any lower than this in their eyes. He wastes his entire substance, his entire inheritance, involving himself with prostitutes and and malcontents, and you know he just parties the whole time has all these friends until things get bad and his money runs out and all of these so-called friends leave him high and dry. He runs completely out of money, which his father had given him. Like I said, which he turned into cash as fast as he could at a fire sale rate. Now he's got cash, he wastes it, and it's gone. Then a famine hits. There's no resources at all. And he ends up with the pigs. And that leads from his rebellion by a legitimate repentance. He feels so bad in verses 17 through 19. He says, look, I have nowhere to go. I'm going to die. I'm hungry. I remember my father pays the people who are just day laborers for work, work, who work for him, he pays them more than they need, which is, in his mind, saying that his father is kind and his father's generous, a good man. And he thinks, I know my father, and I know he's compassionate, and I know he loves me, and I know if I go back He'll be willing to accept me on some terms. It'll be tough, but I'll do it. So he says, I will go back, in verse 18, to my Father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's another way of saying, my sins have piled up as high as heaven. In other words, this is a full confession. He's holding back nothing. He goes, and I'm telling you, I've sinned as high as heaven and you know it. I did it right in your face. I am not worthy to be called your son. Folks, this is the stuff of real repentance. He has come to his senses. He's evaluated his sin. He evaluates where his sin has taken him. He evaluates that he has no way out himself to change it he says I'll go back I trust the judgment of my father I know he'll accept me at some point in time on his terms and I will offer to work for him as a hired man not even a household servant that would be too much to ask for not As a son, that would be way too much to ask for. I'm not worthy to be called a son or even a servant. I'll just earn my living day to day as the lowest person on the social economic ladder of that time. That was the Jewish view of repentance. You feel sorry, you go to God and say you're sorry. Say, okay, God, what do I need to do? And God says, well, first you have to make restitution. You're going to have to work off all your debt. And if you work long enough and hard enough, and if you're faithful enough and do your religious duty and you do your righteous works, and if you remain moral and if you're good, then maybe, just maybe, somewhere down the road, after you pay back all the money you lost, you completely restore what you've wasted, then maybe... There'll be a potential chance for reconciliation at that point in time. But you've got to do it to the end. That's the way the people of Jesus' day, and especially the Pharisees, viewed repentance. Unfortunately, there are some denominations in America as well right now that believe the same thing. That you have to never cuss, never smoke, never have premarital sex, never have extramarital sex, never have same-sex, never cuss, uh, never give your boss a hard time, all these do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do nots, then maybe, maybe, you're good enough to get in. But you got to rely on the mercy of God. No. No. Okay, I'm not going to go down that road right now. We'll get there. We haven't even gotten to the main theme of what I want to teach yet. All right. Salvation in the legalistic system of Judaism. And in any other legalistic system in the world. and. And all religions basically are a form of work-slash-salvation with the exception of true Christianity. They're all the same. Good people go to heaven. People who are righteous, people who are religious, people who do good things. And if you do them long enough and well enough, that's going to show God that you're a good person and that's how you go to heaven. You'll hear people, I hear it all the time. When I talk to someone, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Are you saved? Are you a Christian? Sometimes their response is, well, I don't go to church, but I help out at the homeless shelter once a month. And, you know, they're they're trying to verify that they are doing good. They're a good person because they're doing works. That's not how you get to God. And he had that conventional kind of thinking in the story. Jesus makes this son a Jew, subject to Jewish thinking and Jewish culture and Jewish ways. So he says, I'm going to go back and earn my way back into the favor of my father. I will go and earn my salvation. I'm going to do whatever it takes for long as it takes to get my way back into my father's house and into his treasures and into his heaven. And so he comes back. Now remember, the Pharisees are listening to all this. They're saying, this whole thing is a big story of shame. I mean, a shameful request, a shameful response, a shameful rebellion. Here is shameful repentance. That's good. He's going to come back, and now the father will finally put this boy in his place. He's going to restore his sense of honor. But the father gives the son a shameful repentance in the eyes of the Pharisees. It's amazing. In verse 20, it says he gets up and comes to his father. And when he gets there, he arrives in stinking garments that smell like a pig. He has nothing at all. He's destitute, absolutely broke, basically bankrupt. He has nothing. And his father spotted him a long way off, which indicates that the father has been looking for him and waiting for him and praying for him and hoping for him, suffering in silence in his absence, loving him even while he's gone. And the father sees him a long way off, feels compassion for him, and then the father does something absolutely unthinkable. He hikes up the skirt of his garment and runs right Through town, which any nobleman in the Middle Eastern cultures would never do. That was unacceptable behavior. First of all, you do not allow your legs to be shown in public. We went into detail on that last time. But he runs, and he runs through town to get to the boy before the boy gets to town. Because when he arrives in town, the whole community is going to see him, And they're going to heap scorn and disdain and mockery on him because that's what they're supposed to do. That's part of his penalty for acting the way he did towards his father. But the father, hiking up his robe, takes the shame, runs. A nobleman did not run. You always had one foot on the ground at all times. When you run, very briefly, you are airborne as you're running. That father takes the shame of the people in town that should be directed at the son. It's directed at him. He did a scandalous and shameful thing. He runs through town before the son even gets there, saving the son from the shame. Then he throws his arms around him and kisses him all over the head, which is tantamount to saying, you are my son. I receive you back as a son. All is forgiven. Everything is in the past. Trust in me. You came to me. You repented of your sin. That is all I asked for. And all that can come out of the boy's mouth while this is happening is verse 21. I've sinned against heaven. In other words, again, saying my sins have piled as high as heaven. And in your sight, I am not worthy to any longer be called your son. He drops the part about being the hired man because that's irrelevant now. He has been reconciled to the Father. He understands it. And that is the glory of salvation, folks. God forgives the one who repents and asks for forgiveness. No works involved on the your part at all. Nothing to commend him in his filthy, rotten, stinking rags, as a beggar who possesses nothing, who can earn nothing. Oh, that is the grace of God in our salvation amen we have nothing we can bring to god nothing you cannot bring anything to god to make him accept you any more than just yourself just the way you are pig stink and all glory to god shout amen somebody at that one hallelujah But to the Pharisees, oh, this was ridiculous. They didn't understand this at all. All they understood was you have to earn your way back. So this was outrageous, shameful, shocking actions on the father's part. This father just continues to do dishonorable things. Nobody would do that. When the sun comes back, you make him sit outside the gate for a few days. You make him sit out in the town square and take the scorn and be spit on for a few days. Then finally, you might give him an audience briefly. But all you're going to say is, this is what it's going to take. You do this, you do that, you do this, you do this for this many years. You give me everything I asked for. You give me everything you earned to pay back what you wasted. And we'll see if maybe, maybe, you could be reconciled. That's what the son would expect. That's what the Pharisees would expect the father to do. That was the honorable thing in that culture to do. That's what the boy deserved. That's what he should get. But, That's not what the father gave him. The father's reception was a shameful thing in their minds. And as the shameful reception goes into the shameful reconciliation in verse 22, the father not only takes him back as a son, but restores him to full sonship privileges. He tells the servants, bring the best robe the best robe, and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. What's the robe? A symbol of honor in the family. It's the most important garment the family owned. And right now it's owned by the father, worn by the father at the most prestigious events that the family would ever conduct or be engaged in. In other words, this father is giving this dishonorable son All of the family honor that he could give. Then they take the signet ring, which you use to stamp official documents, which means the father gives this son the freedom to act. And if the son wanted to, he could liquidate everything again and run away. But the father says, no, this son is truly repentant. So I'm giving him back Access to all the family resources. Then he puts shoes on his feet. Servants are barefoot. Hired men are barefoot. Only the masters and the rulers and the sons wear shoes. Give him full sonship, the father says. Give him full power and authority of that sonship. Full authority with full honor. Oh, that is a picture of salvation. When the sinner comes to the Father, bankrupt with absolutely nothing, and casts himself on the Father's mercy and says, I have wasted everything you gave me. My sins are as high as heaven. I have sinned against you, God. I've sinned against you. I can offer you nothing. I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. How many people have said that phrase? Be honest. When everything was going wrong and you said, God, oh, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I got my hand up. I said that prayer. Because we are ingrained with that works sense mentality. But the father just embraces him in love and says, you don't need to work. I give you full sonship with all the rights and the privileges, all the honor, all the authority of Jesus. That is salvation. Then what does the father do? Or why does he do that? Because it brings him joy. Verse 23, what the Pharisees would see is a shameful celebration. The father says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and be merry. The father's joy, the heavenly father's joy is found in the one sinner who comes home and repents of his sins and is given forgiveness amen that's the joy of God verse 24 says this son of mine was dead remember way back a couple sessions ago I told you that when he left there would have been a funeral for this son he was kicked out of the family he was kicked out of town he was kicked out of society But here we see an example of how the son has come back to life. He was lost, but he'd been found. And they began to make merry and have a great celebration. That's the third party in this chapter. There was the party when the sheep was found. There was a party when the coin was found. And now there's a party when the son that was lost has been found. And that is the whole point that Jesus has been trying to get across to his audience. That's what makes heaven rejoice is the salvation of sinners. That's why God sent Jesus into the world to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Hallelujah. Oh, praise God. I got to stop right there for a second. Jesus, the son of man, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not just for the joy of the sinner, not just for the joy of the people in the church. Oh, yay! Three people got saved today. Well, praise God for the three people. Jesus didn't come to make you happy. Jesus didn't come to justify that your church saved three people today. Oh, thank you, Jesus. It's not for his joy, but for the joy of the Father. And the joy of the Holy Spirit, the whole kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul says, is joy. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be one long, everlasting celebration. Praise God. Okay, I said all that over the last 45 minutes or so just to get you caught up in case you are just joining us. And at this point, The third character enters the scene, the older son. Verse 25, it's going to take us the rest of this session and probably next time because of time to get into this because this is probably the most interesting aspect of the story. So I don't want to rush it. But I I know you will receive a huge revelation from this part of the story. Amen. Now, most people would say that the older son, oh, he was the Christian. Yes. He was the believer who was at home doing the work that he should be doing. But, folks, that's not true. That is not true at all. It's 100% false. The older son, it's so fascinating what Jesus does here. The older son, now you have to understand, remember we're talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, the legalists, You're sitting there listening to the story. Everything everybody has done up to now is shameful. Everything, every aspect of this story. You're just waiting for somebody to do what you know is the right thing. The first son did shameful things in how he treated his father. The father shamefully gave this son what he asked for. And then he shamefully took him back and lavished love on him and forgave him and restored him into sonship without any works at all. So he brought shame on himself again by giving him all the honor, authority, and power, leadership authority. And then the father brought more shame to himself by calling the whole community together And celebrate this massive feast over this shameful son who just arrived back in town. I mean, this is completely outrageous. The whole story is shameful. Now, finally, here comes somebody who has been doing what the Pharisees Pharisees think is the honorable thing. He's been working. This is our boy. This is who represents us in this story. Verse twenty-five. Glory to God. And in oh, by the way, <laughs> by meeting this son, they meet themselves. This is that. This is the guy they can relate to. The older son was in the field. Yes, amen. He's been out in the field working. He's been out in the field working that day as many landowners would work. Basically, sitting under a shade tree, making sure all the servants and hired hands are doing what they're supposed to do. That's what the Pharisees did. They were basically supervising or overseeing all the work. That's what they do. The Pharisees, that is what Jesus said they were guilty of when he said, you make all these laws and create all these burdens, but you don't even lift one finger to help others out. In fact, the noblemen in the Middle East did not usually work. That was beneath their dignity. But anyway, he was out in the field. What strikes me is the father hasn't told him anything. The father hadn't sent a servant out and say, hey, get your get this older son and bring him back. He didn't do anything. The father hasn't been looking for him. He didn't send a messenger out say wherever he was, hey, 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 your brother's back. We're going to have a party. Come on. Come greet your brother and embrace him and rejoice with me. Let's get this party off the ground. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. Because, look, he was, number one, Primary, the num- This son was the primary party planner in the family. That was the job of the firstborn son. He had the responsibility to carry off all the events, major events of the family, particularly those that were designed to bring honor to the family. And this party was in honor of the family. Not so much the son who came back, but of the father who took him back. The whole village came together to give honor to this loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving, reconciling father. But nobody bothered to go out and tell the older son. The father doesn't go get him. Why not? Wouldn't you, listening to this story, you say, why didn't somebody go get him and bring him back? The answer is, are you ready? Because the older son had no relationship with the father either. The father knows he has no interest in his brother. He proved that at the beginning of the story when didn't step in and try to stop his brother from doing what was so terrible. It proved he has no interest in the father as well. He proved that by not intervening between his brother and his father in order to stop his brother from such a dishonorable act towards his father and towards the family. In fact, he took his part of the inheritance as well. He never defended the father's honor. He has no relationship to anybody in the family. Being out in the field is sort of a metaphor for where he was in terms of that family. The younger son had gone into a far country. This guy is out in the far field. But the symbolism there is they're both away from the father. This son goes to work, you could say, to get away from the father. Just leave the father at home. I'll go out in the field where I'm the boss. Where everybody gives me honor. Everyone listens to me. Everyone does what I say. And at the end of the day, usually late in the day, he would come home and have as little interaction with the father as he could. Very little. He probably had a little office set up or a study where he could retire for the evening and go over the books, spending very little time interacting with the father, only when necessary. So in this story, they both come home. Both sons come home to the father but to very different receptions. So he's out in the field. The day comes to an end. It says he came and approached the house. And since he had not, up to that point, heard anything, there must have been an indication that it's a pretty big estate. Amen? His father has a big estate where someone can actually be far enough away, and you don't even know when a huge celebration involving Hundreds of people is going on at your house. That's a way to indicate the greatness of God's kingdom. But he comes back and as he approaches the house, he says he heard music and dancing. Now again, everything up to this point has been shameful in the eyes of the Pharisees. Shameful younger son, granted his request, granted and perceived a shameful reply by the father. The son acts in shameful rebellion, ends up making a shameful repentance, and the father gives him what they perceive as a shameful reception and a shameful reconciliation, and now a shamefully big rejoicing party. It all it, It's all just against what all of them believe to be right. And they're drawn into this story now, as I believe you are too, amen. There's nothing wrong with that. They've been making critical judgments every step of the way. Jesus was a master storyteller. He could pull his audience right into the story. They had to make ethical judgments every step of the way in every story. It's a simple story, understandable. Ethical elements contained in the story, and they sit in the position of making ethical judgments. They, there they are, the experts on honor and shame, having been surprised and shocked at every level, at every part of the story, and now they're basically outraged by the conduct of everybody. And Jesus is about to introduce them to themselves. Someone who turns out to be just like them. It's brilliant stuff. It is really... Brilliant when you analyze it the way we've been going through it. They understand nothing of divine grace. They resent divine grace. They don't understand the heart of God. They don't understand his mercy, his tenderness, his compassion, or his forgiveness, and the desire to reconcile with sinners. They know absolutely nothing about that. That's why they don't understand why Jesus, God in human flesh, spends his time with sinners. The older son is the one guy who makes sense to them. They resent the unholy son. They see him as the opposite of their own self-righteous selves. They think the father is some kind of an idiot for shaming himself in the way he treats this son but finally they have somebody they can identify with, somebody who knows what honor is. He's been out working, doing the works, doing what he's supposed to do honorably. And now he comes home, and as he approaches the house, not having been included in anything at all, not the planning or anything, the father knows that, He knows this boy has no interest in him. He knows he has no concern for the father's joy. He knows he doesn't care at all about his younger brother. He knows that. He has no love for his father, no desire to honor his father, grieving, even though his father is grieving towards the wayward son, he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all about his father. He is a Pharisee. Pharisee. He pretends to stay in the father's house, to be dutiful, to do what the father says, to hang around, to get what he wants, to get the father's approval and affirmation and wealth and land and community prestige. He wants to appear religious. He wants to appear as the dutiful son in the eyes of society. On the outside, he upholds all of the conventional modes of external honor, so he comes home and he hears the music and the dancing. Uh, the, the Greek word is symphonist. Uh, we get the Greek word, or we get the word symphony and chorus, which is chorus. So he hears a party going on. There's music, and in those days the men danced in a circle, men only. There was clapping and singing, and there'd be instruments for the music. The word symphonasis is originally a double word meaning. In some Arabic translations it referred to voices together. So there's voices, instruments, dancing, singing. The whole thing is going on. It's a huge celebration. The fatted calf has been killed. What they did not When they killed a fatted calf in those days, they did not fillet it. They just chopped it up into slabs of meat. And they would cook it in big chunks in bread ovens. And they would start to party in a very imprecise way. Life was not nearly as by the clock as it is today. The day was over. Work was over. And the announcement would go out, Come to my house. I'm killing the fatted calf. The sun is home. People would begin to come. When they arrived, they'd become, they would eat, and the meat would continue to cook, and it would be continually cooked for hours, and the singing and celebrating would go on as well into the night as the ebb and flow of this wonderful celebration took place. Well, when this son comes home, it's already underway. It's already a full-blown party when the older son arrives. And again, it's an indication that he probably came home from a long way indicating the greatness of the Father's estate. And he's stunned. He's surprised and confused, mostly suspicious, because legalists are always suspicious, particularly of joyful people. And by the way, something this big is not usually planned in one day. This was planned for months and months by the Father. And he was not the center of it. He is, after all, the owner of the land because the estate's already been divided. Though he cannot take possession of his part till the father's death, but it's already assigned to him. These are his resources being used. This is his calf. And all of the rest of the things that are going on, he's using things that actually belong to him. And he hasn't even been consulted about it. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't even know what's happening until he shows up. This too is another outrageous act on the part of the Father in the eyes of the Pharisees. It's an insult. So when he arrives, when he approaches the house, he hears music and dancing. Then it should say, and he rushed into his father said, Father, what's going on here? What's all this partying about? But he doesn't do that. If he loved his father, he would have gone in the house and said, what's going on? What's going on here? And his father would have said, your brother's home. Then he would have embraced his father and rejoiced with tears because he knows how much his father loved his brother. He knew his father was broken as this son was long gone. He knew he had gone out to look for him, looking on the horizon day after day after day. And even though he didn't know he was back, because nobody had told him yet, whatever made his father happy would make him happy if he loved his father. But he has no love at all for the father. He has a love for himself. It's all about him and his property and his reputation and his prestige. So in verse 26, it says, and he summoned one of the servants. Servants, actually, is Padeon here. It's from the Greek word which means a young boy. All the family servants would be inside. They'd be taking care of all the guests. As I said, there had to be at least a 100 to 200 guests, and that would be unusual to eat a fatted calf. Not everybody ate a 16-ounce piece of beef, and the fact is they didn't eat a lot of meat except on special occasions, but then not a lot. But on the outside, there were these young boys. Well, this tells us a little bit about the Middle Eastern culture. The adults would all be inside. They would all be in the house, or in the courtyard of the house, having this great celebration. At some point, out on the fridges would be the kids that didn't get to come, but they were sort of the perimeter celebratory crowd, you know, the, the fringe participants. The young boys would all hang out on the edges because this is a huge event. This would be the first group that he would meet as he comes in. And the first ones he runs into after he hears all of this partying going on, he'd find these young boys. So in verse 26, he began inquiring what these things might be. This is shocking. What in the world? I go out to work. It's a day like any other day. I had not heard anything special going on. I go out. I sit under this tree, make sure everybody's doing what they are supposed to do. I come home, and you've got the biggest celebration ever. What's going on? Why wasn't I consulted? Why wasn't I told? How is it I don't even know about this? And one of the young boys says to him in verse 27, your brother has come home. Uh Uh-oh. What should have filled his heart with joy didn't. That news should have been enough that, he, that after he heard what was said, he should rush in because he knew how his brother's life had started out when he left. He must have been so anxious and excited to find out the whole, how the whole thing ended up. He knew his father's heart was broken when his brother left. He knew how regularly the father looked for him and longed for him, probably talked about him. He loved his father. At that point, he would have immediately run inside but it really was fear when he heard his brother came back. Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. His worst fears. His brother came back, and his father received him back. This outrageous conduct is more than this older brother can take. Look at the phrase, safe and sound. That's a funny thing, isn't it? It's an old English colloquialism that seems to last even in our modern translation. The Greek actually translated from a word where we get hygiene. It basically means wholeness or well-being. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is always connected to shalom, which means what? It means peace. That's really what he's saying. It's not that he's not physically hurt. It's not limited to that. He's received back in peace. This is not just good health. This is shalom. This is peace and a full reconciliation between a father and a son. It isn't that his son came back and the father told him to sit on the edge of town for a week and think about what he did until he gained the right to talk to his father and then he'd give him the things he needed to do to earn back his reconciliation. It's not that. The father received him and received him in shalom. He's made peace forever. That's why there's a party. There would be a party if he had come back and had to work I am sorry, there would not be a party if he had to come back and work for the next 20 years. This is the worst possible scenario because now the father is using the older son's resources for the party. The son has already depleted the whole family treasury by taking his half, selling it on the cheap, and leaving, which meant that the whole thing could not grow So the older son, when the father died, could have more. No, the younger son is now back, depleting even more of the family resources. And the foolish father is using these resources on him. The son is the favorite guest at the banquet. But the banquet is really in honor of the father. The town is there to celebrate the father, whose mercy and grace and kind and loving is is demonstrating reconciling the lost son back. You see, that's the picture of heaven's joy. And a legalist who thinks you earn your way to heaven doesn't understand that. doesn't understand that God's joy is found in faith justifying the ungodly that God's joy is found in forgiving the sinner who's bankrupt and has nothing the older son that's why now his worst fears have come true his brother's back his father's embraced him this is outrageous and for the first time in the story the pharisees are saying yep That's exactly the right attitude to have. That's exactly how he should feel. He should be mad. He should be outraged. We're outraged. This whole story is just one outrageous act after another. So this son makes the decision. He is not going to be part of this shameful event. He refuses to participate. He's going to maintain his honor. His son had brought shame to himself. His father has continually shamed himself. He's got the whole community involved in this shameful celebration. I'm not going to be part of it. Verse 28 says, He became angry and was not willing to go in. Of course not. That's the answer to the original issue, isn't it? The Pharisee said, Look, you receive and eat with sinners. You have a banquet with sinners. How can you do that? They didn't understand that God's joy and God in Christ, Christ's joy, was in receiving repentant sinners, paragials, the immoral, the outcasts. But for a legalist, that is outrageous conduct. Absolutely outrageous. But what you see is he had no love at all for his brother. He did not rejoice in his brother coming back home any more than he cared what his brother left. He had no love for the father. He didn't rejoice with his father anymore than what uh, he defended his father at the beginning when his father was hearing the request from the younger son. This is not a believer. He is not a Christian. This is a typical religious hypocrite standing on the outside condemning the gracious work of salvation. He's angry. The only emotion he feels and you know what? The Pharisees and scribes think he's right. They're saying, yep, we're angry too. We would be angry too. We'd feel exactly the same way. Folks, don't be like that older brother. As we get ready to close, you don't need to repent if you're already saved. But if you're one of the 99, remember back when Jesus said he comes to seek and save them that were lost? Pray this prayer with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you as a sinner. I have nothing to bring to you but myself. I accept forgiveness in the name of Jesus, and I ask Jesus now to become my Lord and Savior. Save me, Lord Jesus. I am yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. You pray that prayer? Email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org. Be blessed in all you do.
0: You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's FTFM.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.